The Lord be with you. Jesus starts out his life of preaching and healing and kingdom proclaiming rooted in the tradition of a Hebrew prophet. And like so many of the Hebrew prophets before him, people like Moses or Isaiah or Elijah, Jesus walked the earth alone. More specifically, alone in the wilderness, keeping company with low and thirsty desert plants like the acacia or the white broom or the shrubby salt brush. Jesus making camp under the canopy of the Milky Way with ravens for an alarm clock and relentless sunshine overhead in the day. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Before we're tempted to romanticize this wilderness retreat, we should remember that Jesus was also fasting, hungry, starving, his body eating itself. It's a long and difficult and painful and dizzy and hazy, dreamy abstinence from nourishment and comfort of food. This is not a picnic. This is not a hike. This is not a camp out. It's a rigorous and demanding deprivation, a withdrawal from the safety and comfort of civilization, It's tough slugging in wild spaces. It's Jesus on the edge, hanging by the fragile thread of life. Life in a dangerous world, and he's surrounded by survivors and predators and scavengers. This is Jesus' vision quest story. None of this is by accident. Jesus didn't miss a turn on the map on his way to Capernaum. This is the first planned stop. It's a necessary preparation for everything that is to come. It's a necessary preparation for everything we do today. The gripping spirit of creation has driven the Son of God out into the wild open space after his baptism. The spirit is still hovering over the waters, the waters of new creation. And Jesus is acting out the first pages of Scripture. Because in Matthew, it follows a theme which the readers of the day would have been crystal clear to them. Jesus was reenacting the defining story for his people. Forty days of fast, or forty days of fasting in the desert draw a direct line to that time when the children of Israel wandered in the desert for forty years. Hungry and thirsty and miserable and complaining and fumbling the whole way. This is the sort of performance art that Hebrew prophets did, and they really, really didn't mind taking their time. Jesus was retracing the story of the people of God in their time of trial, in their time of failure, and this is a do-over. The book of Deuteronomy tells it like this. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. And so after 40 humbling, testing days, hunger and weariness, 
the threshold of starvation, the devil shows up. And it's worth stopping here, I think, for a moment to make a note about the devil. Christian traditions and theologians for centuries have had trouble working out a satisfactory doctrine or theology of Satan. It's a real pickle because there are some genuine theological problems. If you choose to frame the devil as a sort of powerful anti-God character, a potent being bent on wickedness and desecration, But there are also some real theological problems if you reduce the devil to a metaphor, uh, an image of the broad spectrum of darkness and evil. Especially because so many of the New Testament writers, Matthew included, talk about the devil quite a bit. If I could suggest a great series for pre-church study time for the grown-ups, A terrific book called Reviving Old Scratch by Richard Beck. Alan, you up for it? Maybe in the fall? Anyways, I'm going to be hanging out with the teenagers. It's not up to me. The title of that book, by the way, is Reviving Old Scratch, Demons and the Devil for Doubters and the Disenchanted. It's worth noting that the Jewish picture of The Satan is a lot different from the ridiculous Christian pop culture cartoon of that guy with horns and a pitchfork and a goatee, none of which is found in Scripture, by the way. The Hebrew Bible presents us with a much more strange and cryptic picture of the Satan or the accuser. And I've really appreciated Amy Jill Levine's brilliant work. She has reminded us that in the Jewish tradition, it helps to call to mind the image of heaven's throne room with the divine council of characters, including the accuser who God keeps on the payroll for reasons that only God knows. As it says in Job 1, one day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. If you remember the Job story, Satan's whole project was to help corrupt and destroy the faith of a righteous man. And as I read this story in Matthew, this character from Job is the accuser in my mind's eye. It's one of my favorite Bible translators, Sarah Rudin, wonderfully renders Satan as the slanderer in her transition, translation, and I think that's a good one. And so we have a starving and exhausted Jesus who's walking the earth like the nation of Israel and also like old blameless Job, and he's suffering the scorn now and the malice of the accuser. A few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' baptism, and maybe you remember that booming voice from heaven, this is my son, the beloved with him, or with whom I am well pleased. Is that so? Says the slanderer. Son of God is an impressive handle, Jesus, and don't you think it should come with some perks? Three temptations follow. The first, 
the temptation to cash in some of those son of God points for bread in the desert. The next is a little bigger. It's the temptation to put on a show. Step right out for a P.T. Barnum-style spectacle, son of God demonstration for the crowd, now with guardian angels. The devil quoting Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up. Come on, Jesus, take it on the road, maybe. A slick and daring display of your superpowers like nothing you've ever seen. And for the final temptation, this time for all the marbles, the kingdom of the world laid out before him. That son of God stuff can only take you so far, and you've got a promising career. And if you want to make an omelet, uh, you've got to break a few eggs, as they say. Why not cash in all of your chips for power and domination and rule the world? You can have it all, baby. Just fall down and worship power for power's sake and turn your back on the path of peace and make a list of casualties and collateral damage and hide it all in the fog of war. Each time Jesus responds with a quote from scripture. And wouldn't you know it, each time he chooses the book of Deuteronomy. It's almost like there's a theme here. Another connection to Israel's wandering and testing story, if we didn't get it already. It is written, one shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Worship the Lord, your God, and serve only him. With that final temptation and that final response, Jesus finally calls it. Kick, rocks, Satan, we're done here. And the Son of God, he's walked the path of testing. Jesus has contended with the slanderer, the accuser, and been found blameless. And suddenly, without any explanation or details, angels came and waited on him. What a sight. It's clear that there's a lot going on in this story, and we've only scratched the surface. But if there's one thing the gospel writer is doing, is introducing and framing for us the person of Jesus, the Son of God. And one thing the tempted Son of God shows us in the desert, Jesus is personally deadly serious about evil in any form it takes. Casual evil? Occasional evil, evil that starts off as a little speck but then grows like black mold between the floorboards and in the walls, evil that looks quite reasonable and appropriate, understandable even, but with a little time and a little ego and carelessness morphs into something ugly. Even evil evil that's explained or rationalized or argued for, private, secret evil, Public celebrity evil, and yes, let's not forget uh, violence and oppressive world domination sort of evil too. And with this story, we're given this assurance. Gospel words for weary people. We don't walk this earth alone. 
None of us do. Because this is ground that Jesus has covered. As the letter to the Hebrews puts it, because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. That's us, of course. And of course, we're all in over our heads. We are immersed in a slurry, a poisoned backwater. The voice of the accuser is a pollutant. It burns our lungs and our skin, and it clouds our vision. We don't know life without the metallic taste of it, and the smell of it, always there in the background. Daily, the voices of the slanderers and the accusers in our world assault our humanity, telling us that we are on our own. They tell us that we should just take what we can get when we can get it. They assure us that the only true path to success is fantastic and spectacular and sexy, comfortable and profitable. They tell us that there is no other choice in the end but to step up and take what is ours. And we had better pick the winning side. That's the one thing. Even if that means we choose exploitation or the side of violence or the willful ignorance of it all or simple compliance with unfair systems and structures. And it's hard. Why shouldn't we believe those voices? Evidence of these realities are with us every day. They walk the streets of this city. In our society, if you fail at the game of life, We allow you to live on the street or rot in a prison. Hungry, alone, and afraid, this is our world. Even still, we follow Jesus and we resist this evil in the world. We resist evil when we come together, when we refuse to live like solitary mercenaries or desperate survivalists. We resist the evil in the world when we refuse to act like our brothers and sisters on this planet are obstacles, are competitors, or adversaries. We resist evil when we name the grace of a loving God who sustains our every breath. What a gift to celebrate with you your baptism today, Bahar. And as you stepped out of those waters of new creation today, you follow in the way of Jesus. And we don't know where this will take you. But Christ is with you, preparing and blessing and helping you along the way. You're carried by the Spirit of God out into the world for a life shaped by Jesus. Resisting evil even when the way ahead is difficult. What a joy to be a part of your day today. And to be clear, it will none of this will ever be about a quick fix or slick perks or spectacular gains or a big show. It's not about power or strength or domination. The path of Jesus as he says time and again, is about true humanity expressed in deep love and self-sacrifice. 
The faithfulness of God is made known to us in Christ. And so, God bless you on your way. Friends, together we are a new people of God retracing these same desert steps with new hope, daily assured that we do not live by bread alone. We live because the word of grace which speaks our world into existence. And because of Jesus, together we push back against the forces of slander and accusation and desolation. Each of us carried by the Spirit into the world for a life shaped by love and hope. Pilgrim, friends, desert, wanderers, seekers, strugglers. The Lord be with you on your way. Amen. Thanks be to God.